Here's a reading. It's from Matthew 11:28 to 30. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Hello, Park Slope. Uh, I'm a strange imposter to you this morning. I uh, thought I was going to be introduced, but I guess I just know how you guys get down around here. So, um, my name is Tyler. I'm the pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Williamsburg. Um, my older brother, Josh, just gave the announcements. Um, so, I've been following him my entire life, and here I am in adulthood. Just more of the same. Um, We're continuing a teaching series today titled Alive, where we're taking a look at the few weeks that follow the resurrection. And for Jesus' followers, it was these days and weeks following the resurrection that were their greatest period of adjustment. Because what they were suddenly realizing is that resurrection did not mean that we were taken out of ordinary life. It meant that new life has come into the very ordinary circumstances of our day today. And so following that same script, we're asking ourselves, what is our share in the resurrection? So in the coming weeks, we'll be looking at things like, how do we actually find rest in chaos, sacrifice in the midst of a world obsessed with productivity, peace right in the midst of our doubt, weakness where God's power is made perfect, and then love that holds it all together? What is our share in the resurrection of Jesus in the midst of ordinary life? But today we come to rest, and this teaching text is a pretty famous passage. There's probably quite a few of you that are familiar with it, but regardless of your familiarity or lack thereof, what it contains is a beautiful invitation that so few of us actually take. So let's pray together, and then we'll take a look at that invitation. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to humble myself before you now. I I don't want us as a church to come casually into your presence, God. We have, have been declaring who you are, singing who is like you, Lord. And so, God, I just want to confess that I don't have anything prepared this week that is life to anyone's soul. You are you are the only one who can bring that. So Holy Spirit, would you come and be among us? Would you speak to us? I pray for the least likely person in here that thinks they might encounter you this morning, God, that you would speak to their heart. I pray for the distracted person that's gone through motions like this morning a thousand times that you would wake them up today, God, and draw them close to you. More than anything else, God, just you know our hearts, you know where we are. This is such a profoundly good invitation. I pray that you would make it real to each one of us in the unique way that we need to hear it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the final words of Jesus are, it is finished. Which is kind of funny when you consider the fact that on any objective scale, the ministry of Jesus was a failure. Just think about the facts that surrounded the birth of Jesus. Caesar Augustus is on the throne of Rome demanding to be worshipped as a deity. Herod Antipas is ruling the Jewish people through economic oppression and violence, and the Pharisees are misleading the entire nation of Israel through spiritual manipulation. 
It's a world in need of a savior. Luckily, Jesus is born, but then he spends his entire life in 33 years of being controlled by those same governing authorities with a ministry that's constantly interrupted by those same spiritually manipulative forces. And then at the end of his life, the two conspire together to execute him. And then the life of Jesus gets immediately followed by no apparent change whatsoever. The Romans still rule the world through violence. The Pharisees still hold ultimate religious authority. And the Jews are still forced to live in bondage. The author Philip Yancey writes about this saying, From beginning to end, the conflict between Rome and Jesus appeared to be entirely one-sided. And so I think any unbiased observer living at the time of Jesus would sum up his ministry like this, noble attempt, complete failure. And still, Jesus has the audacity to, between dying breaths, hanging on a cross, utter the words, it is finished. So what's he talking about? What is finished? What mission has been accomplished? What has he done? Hold on to that question. We're going to come back around to it. So Matthew chapter 11 is an invitation to rest. I imagine an invitation that sounds pretty good to basically all of us. And so I just want to spend time working through the text, asking these three very simple questions. Who is it for? What's it to? And how is it accepted? Who is it for? What's it to? How is it accepted? So first, who is this invitation for? Who is Jesus addressing with this invitation to rest? Our text opens like this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. It's an invitation particularly for two groups of people, the weary and the burdened. You know, many of us feel weary almost all the time, just weary from the course of the the circumstances of normal days and normal routines, but we're not entirely sure why. And so I just want to offer one suggestion of why you might feel weary. It might be because you live in New York. (laughs) Because New York always has been and always will be distinct from every other place that surrounds it. If you look back at the late 15th and early 16th centuries, when, when the colonial Northeast was being settled, you had different people groups moving to live in various parts of America. So people were settling Virginia and Massachusetts, and a few even went with Rhode Island, and they were all like settling down to live, but New York didn't start like that. New York was founded by the Dutch as a trading post. From its very beginning, New York City has been a place to work, not to live. And it stayed pretty true to that reputation forever. People are still, what, what is going on? Is this, is this normal? <laughs> All right. I mean, I just didn't know. This is a remarkable amount of focus. I'm struggling. I can't imagine. Anyway, so <laughs> last time I preached here, a fire alarm went off midway through the service. I don't know how you guys do it week after week. Anyway, let's stay the course. So to this day, people still move from all over the world to this city. Why? To work. People are still drawn here for a purpose and an ambition and for some type of work. And so some of you are weary. And it's because you just moved to New York. You just settled down and attempted to make a trading post your permanent home. 
And, and others of you have been here for a while, and you're like, yes, I'm aware of that. That's why I live in Park Slope. I'm trying to make a trading post as livable as it can possibly be. And if you talk to someone that's stuck around the city for a couple of decades, what they'll tell you is, I've been here long enough that I don't think I can live anywhere else anymore. Because the city eventually ruins you to the rest of the world. It's like urban Stockholm Syndrome sets in, and we cannot go anywhere else except for here. And I think it would be really convenient and many of us would enjoy blaming our weariness on the city that we live in, but it's not that simple. Because this, the city doesn't actually do anything different to you, it just exposes what's already within you. It just kind of puts a microscope on the weariness that you're already carrying around. So the sociologist Alan de Botton in his book Status Anxiety writes these words. Every adult life could be said to be defined by two great love stories. The first, the story of our quest for sexual love, is well-known and well-charted. Its vagaries form the staple of music and literature. It is socially accepted and celebrated. The second, the story of our quest for love from the world, is a secret and more shameful tale. In other words, every one of us in our own unique way is searching for some sort of abstract love from the world and is leveraging our lives towards that. And so I spent some time thinking about this personally this last week and I just thought, when is the the first time in my life that I can remember actually like being on a personal quest to receive some sort of love from the world? And I'm sure that there are examples before this, but it immediately took me back to the seventh grade. Because in the seventh grade, I tried out for the middle school basketball team. Love basketball, always have loved basketball, mostly love watching and commenting on basketball at this point in my life, but I I tried out for the middle school basketball team, and pretty much all of my friends tried out. It was a week-long tryout. It was every day after school for two hours. We'd play basketball. There was a man with all of the power standing with a clipboard making notes that you were like trying to peek at in between drills. And so this goes on for four days, and at the end, on Thursday afternoon, he says, okay, tomorrow morning, we're going to post the, the cuts for the basketball team on the gym door. It's like, the, I'm, I'm going with the least confrontational way I can possibly break the news to you. And so I'm going to put it where the entire school can know who did and did not make the basketball team. You guys just take a look tomorrow. So as you can imagine, 12-year-old me shows up to school the next day, heart beating through my chest, beeline for the gym door, and I get there, and I'm like, okay, oh, there's my friend's names, there's that guy I thought I was better than, ooh, back to the top now, and my name's not on it. That's a tough blow when you're 12. It's a tougher blow when you're a particularly emotional 12-year-old who has to go to algebra after this. I've got enough distance now to admit that I didn't handle it very well. But by, by the end of that day, I had basically rechanneled all the emotion that I felt at that moment towards something else. I, I had rechanneled it towards the coach is wrong about me, and I'm going to prove that he is wrong. And so basically the rest of that year, while all of my friends were going to the movies and doing these different things, I was watching clips from the movie Hoosiers and doing ball handling drills in my driveway. I was determined, I'm going out for the team again in eighth grade, and I'm going to prove that the coach was wrong about me. So I did, and I made the team in eighth grade, and I never played. I was the last guy on the bench, never got in the game, but I had the tearaways to prove that I was a part of the team. I proved myself. And we all have stories like that, right? We all have things that we did in our youth that, that we look back on. But, that, but like we're adults now. That's no longer a part of us. 
except that I did run my first marathon uh, this last year, probably my last marathon as well, if you're considering it. It feels like a one-time occasion, having done it. Um, I did all of this training and got ready to run this marathon, was really excited about it and everything, and then two weeks out from from the date of the race, I got injured. And so I emailed the most experienced runner I knew, Caleb Clardy, And, and I said, what can I possibly do? And he says, I actually know a physical therapist that works in one of the medical tents at the marathon. Let me give you his contact information. So I emailed Tony, the physical therapist, and I said, look, I never want to have to be in this level of endurance condition again. I have to run this race. Is there any way that you can help me? And so I like, detailed, described my injury, asked if he could see me. Is there anything I can do? He emailed back and he said, Tyler, I'm so sorry. I'm absolutely booked. There's no way that I can see you, but I know the exact type of injury that you're describing, and I would say there is a very, very small, if any chance, you can complete a successful race on this injury. And I was like, thank you, Tony. That is all that I needed. I'm going to finish this race now. And I kid you not, 100% honest story, when I crossed the finish line, the first thought that went through my mind was, take that, Tony. Now, what is that? What is that thing that's in me? What am I trying to prove? And who am I trying to prove it to? See, if you move to New York from somewhere else, I can almost guarantee you that that thing is in you too. Because almost everyone comes to the city to expand the scope of the impact of their lives. Could I work in this industry in another city? Of course I could if I want to have limited upward mobility in an average life. But I don't. And so I've come to New York. And so people, they they always move to New York with a vision or a hunger or a passion or whatever attractive term you want to cloak it in. Most people move to New York to prove themselves. They move to New York with a chip on their shoulders and something to prove and someone to prove it to. And if you were born here or you, you didn't come here with that motivation, it almost certainly became a part of you once you were here because this city is sprinting. And so we're constantly proving ourselves to some authority figure from our past or to some unspoken abstract standard we've set up for ourselves or to the group of friends that we met once we got here. We're always proving ourselves. And I think we see this, if you get at what is the most common fear at the heart of every New Yorker? It's, it's stillness. It's an extended period of time between jobs. It's having to live my day-to-day life without the busyness that tells me that I'm important. Because stillness is terrifying in a place where everyone's running as hard as they can. So then, back to Alain de Baton one more time. He says, anxiety is the handmaiden of modern ambition. And I think that's a statement that kind of summarizes this whole trend of thought. Anxiety is the handmaiden of modern ambition. How many of us could honestly say, you know, I've got a pretty good life. But when I step back from it and actually look at it, I've got a pretty good life except for one thing the handmaiden of anxiety that follows me around everywhere that I go, that that haunts my final thoughts before I try to rest each night and pounces on me the second I wake up in the morning. How are you doing today? I think the most honest answer that the majority of us would give to that question is, I'm so tired. 
I'm so tired of trying to prove myself to all of these other people and to the standard that I've set up for myself but never actually articulated and to my friends from back home that follow me on social media. I'm so tired. We are a weary people. But there's great news. That means that you're the perfect candidate for the invitation of Jesus to true and deep rest. But it's not just the weary Jesus is talking to. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened. So what does it mean to be burdened? Well, one of the most commonly misinterpreted aspects of this particular passage is the meaning of the word yoke. Because when we read the word yoke, we typically think of the Oregon Trail version. We, we think of like a covered wagon with a couple of oxen up front and a yoke that's holding it all together. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. There was a different kind of yoke that existed at the time of Jesus. It was a human yoke, and it would be a beam that was held across the shoulders of someone to carry heavy loads, too heavy just to bear in their arms. And so it would basically balance the load across their body so that they could carry something like this. And it was used as an image for spirituality throughout the Hebrew wisdom tradition. So if you look back at the Hebrew book of Barak, you'll find that, or I'm sorry, Sirach, just thinking presidential, you, you'll find this phrase, Come under wisdom's yoke. And so the Pharisees borrowed from the stream and the tradition they were a part of and, and would often use the phrase in talking to their own followers, put on the yoke of the Torah. And so when Jesus uses this terminology of yoke, he's actually critiquing the Pharisees by borrowing from their own language. Later he gets more explicit in his critique in Matthew's gospel, eventually accusing the Pharisees of loading people down with heavy burdens that they do not lift a finger to help them with. And so maybe you've come here today to listen to the words of Jesus, but truly you are bearing the yoke of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and you've come to pray the right prayers or go through the right rituals so that you can feel okay before God for another week. Or maybe it's exactly the opposite. The poet Christopher Fry famously said, what after all is a halo? Just one more thing to keep clean. In other words, I'll, I'll be just fine without religion. Life is hard enough without a book and a weekly meeting to make me feel guilty and worse about myself. And so maybe you gave up on the yoke of religious performance a long time ago. Maybe you did away with moralism and all of its demands that never actually helped anybody anyway. But can I just humbly ask you this one question? Is that working for you? I mean, is your newfound moral freedom actually stilling the restlessness of your internal life? You see, one of the, the troubles with being a human being is that we have to put something at the center all the time. And honest reflection will reveal that putting the self at the center, it, it basically delivers the same result as putting religion at the center. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring stillness. It does not calm our restlessness. David Foster Wallace uh, once said these words, our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of the universe. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the hell of eternal autobiography. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis depicts hell just simply as an endless spiral into the self. It is an unending nosedive into me and my restlessness and my anxiety and my worry and my self-concern and my self-absorption. See, we all carry yokes. 
The only choice that we have is the particular load to bear on those yokes. Burden means that you are carrying a load too heavy than you were ever designed to bear. And so if you feel like normal life just is like weighing down on your back, if you are trudging through steps of your normal routine as you walk in today heavily burdened, there's phenomenal news. You are the perfect candidate for the true and lasting rest that Jesus offers. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. That's who this invitation is for. So then what's it to? What is the end that Jesus is inviting us to? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He later goes on to say, you will find rest for your souls. So from what I can tell, the common rhythm of work and rest seems to be go through a really intense season and then breathe for a minute. And then go through another really intense season and then breathe for a minute again. And I think that sort of life rhythm actually exposes where we typically look for rest. Most of us look for rest from, in freedom from or in freedom to. We look to rest in freedom from responsibility. So for some of you, true rest is an auto-reply on my work email. It's a vacation somewhere without cell service. It's a week where my family's at the in-law's place and I had to stick around the city for work. And for others of you, rest is freedom too. It is freedom to indulge. It's having one too many on a Friday evening without having to work, wake up at any particular time tomorrow. It's Saturday morning donuts. It's, it's a night where all of my roommates are gone and I'm sticking around at home and it's just me and a bottle of wine and some tiki masala and my Netflix queue. So whatever your own unique version of rest may be, I think it can be summed up like this. Most of us think of rest as setting down the heavy burden that I have been bearing for long enough so that I can pick it back up again and keep going forward another couple of steps. And that is not at all what Jesus had in mind. We actually have a picture that exists earlier in Matthew's gospel of what Jesus meant by rest. So Jesus and the 12 are out crossing the sea one afternoon and a storm kicks up that's bad enough that the disciples actually aren't entirely sure they're going to make it. And so they're scrambling, calling out orders to one another and throwing things overboard and doing everything they can. And they're like, where's Jesus? We need some help. And it turns out that he's taking a nap in the captain's quarters. And that is a picture of what Jesus means by true rest. He's not talking about rest from this ordinary life. He's not talking about continuing this life without actually facing any storms. He's talking about rest in the midst of the storms of this life. And that's what he means when he says rest for your souls. I was on vacation uh, a couple of years ago in Colombia. And I was going on a snorkeling expedition, as you do when you're in Colombia. And my wife and I hailed a cab... And the cab that picked us up already had two other Americans in it. And so we, we get into this cab and we start talking to them. And the, the question finally comes up. Oh, so, so what do you guys do? We found out they lived in New York as well. What do you do? What do you do in New York? And I'm like, oh, here we go. This was, this was an average conversation until now. And I said, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, no way. I grew up Jewish. And I was like, I don't think that's the same thing. And, and, 
And we end up in, the, in this kind of back and forth, and, and we end up like really hitting it off with these people, Jake and Lauren. They're some of our closest friends to this day. Like the, the friendship just carried back over to New York. But, so we end up in this long conversation primarily about the Sabbath, because they said, yeah, I don't actually believe in the claims of Judaism spiritually anymore, but I do believe in its lifestyle principles as like helpful for healthy living, particularly the Sabbath. So they honor and practice the Sabbath every week. And what they were getting at is that they've grown up in family traditions that carry this long stream of rest that reaches all the way back to creation, that they have grown up hearing that a defined period of time every week where you do not work is an essential form of worship. And this is a biblical theme that gets traced all the way to creation. In the book of Genesis, God rested on the seventh day. And so throughout Old Testament history, the Jewish people had this very clearly defined 24-hour period of rest with all sorts of rules attached called the Sabbath, where they were attempting to model the character of God. And then Jesus shows up, and he actually improves upon the tradition of rest that he was joining, but he doesn't do it by like adding to the strictness of the rules. He does it by taking some liberties. Because by this time in history, the Sabbath had become arguably the most distinguishing thing for the Jewish people from all the other nations of the world. It was the thing that set them apart. So roughly a third of Jesus' ministry is rebukes to the Pharisees. And the primary source of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day was rest. It was what is and is not appropriate to do on the Sabbath. How do we rest Judith Shulevitz wrote an article in the New York Times called Bring Back the Sabbath a few years ago where she confesses that her own practice of Sabbath is is actually very ironic. She says, my normal routine, which involved brunch with friends and swapping tales of misadventure and the relentless quest for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. Even my rest is producing restlessness within me. And then she goes on to say, most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. See, what she's getting at is that it's very possible to have a committed habit of rest. And you can even spiritualize it and call it Sabbath and never approach the invitation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. And this article concludes... By, by saying rest, true rest is actually not freedom from responsibility. It's not freedom to indulge. It's stilling the internal murmur. That is rest for your soul, stilling the internal murmur. That is how Jesus rested. If you read through the Gospels attentively, you'll notice this theme, that Jesus is constantly withdrawing alone to pray. Sometimes it's early in the morning before anyone else has woken up. Sometimes he stays up all night in prayer. But when he's gone and no one knows where he is, he's almost always found on the Mount of Olives, which seems to be his choice spot for true rest. And there's one pattern that you can pick up, that there's a couple of times where Jesus almost always goes off on his own to pray. And it's either following great success or great failure. Any time that that the crowd around Jesus gets particularly excited and big, he withdraws alone to pray. Any time the crowd around Jesus gets particularly critical and begins to shrink, he withdraws alone to pray. What's he doing? He's stilling the internal murmur. Because before Jesus ever started doing before he uttered a single word of teaching, before he worked a miracle, before he converted anyone, before he drew a single follower to himself, he was baptized. 
And it was at that baptism that he heard the audible voice of the Father break forth from heaven and say, you are my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And the order of events there is critically important because that means that the ministry of Jesus sprang forth from the affirmation of the Father. The affirmation of the Father did not come as a result of the ministry of Jesus. And so when Jesus withdraws alone to pray, what he's doing is he, he's realizing that throughout my ministry, I'm tempted. I am tempted to listen to the affirming voices of the crowd or the rejecting voices of the crowd. And so whenever those start getting mixed in with the voice of the Father, I'm going to withdraw alone, still the internal murmur, and tune my ear again to only the one affirming voice that speaks truth. And in this way, true rest is actually an act of worship. Because true rest is an acknowledgement of my limitations. It is to acknowledge that no amount of working and doing and achieving on my part is ever going to be enough to still the internal murmur of restlessness within me. And it's also an acknowledgement of God's character. It is to say God is more than just a stingy utilitarian. God is a loving, relational being. So to stop all of your doing and just be with God, that may be the most countercultural act of spiritual formation that anyone can take in the trading post that we call home. It is to say, I am more than what I do. I am loved by God apart from my performance. And all of my doing springs forth from that affirmation. That affirmation does not come as a result of my doing. But Jesus doesn't just say, come and I'll teach you a series of spiritual disciplines that'll give you true rest if you try really, really hard and remain committed. He says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. It's a free gift without condition, without action on your part. So this brings us to the final question, how is it accepted? Rest for my soul, that sounds wonderful. How do I actually access it? How do I share in resurrection life in the midst of the storms of this week? How is it accepted? The unexplored words from our teaching text say, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the final 24 hours of Jesus' life represent an obvious shift. Suddenly, the same man that was calm enough to sleep in the midst of the storms of this life is sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is anxiously pleading with God. He's pacing back and forth between on my knees in prayer before God to my drowsy disciples. He he is anything but at rest. He's then arrested, manhandled, beaten, and crucified. And on the cross, he cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not a man at peace. That's not someone experiencing inner stillness in the midst of the storms of this life. That's not a man with a deep sense of the affirming voice of the Father as he's going through circumstantial hardship. Jesus' final 24 hours were anxious, restless, weary, and burdened. Why? Because he's bearing your yoke. Because he takes all of your internal turmoil within his own soul. 
You see, in Jesus' resurrection, he's winning a cosmic victory on behalf of the whole human race, but he's also winning a deeply personal victory on behalf of your unique forms of internal restlessness. And so in his last day, and when he pays the price with his life, Jesus takes within himself all of your restlessness, all of your desire to prove yourself, the handmaiden of anxiety that follows you around, all of your unique ways that you push away contentment and say, no, no, this apartment, this stage of life, this job, this whatever will never be enough to actually fulfill the deep needs of my soul. He takes all of that within his soul and he bears all of your internal burdens on himself. And this is the exchange of yokes that in his resurrection... Jesus shares his easy and light yoke with you. In return, he gives you the quiet, still, without murmur state of his internal life. He gives you the affirming voice of the Father that he had so carefully tuned his ear to. He gives you the peace that allowed him to be calm in the midst of the storm. See, take my yoke upon you is this statement from Jesus, which means rest is more than just an escape or a weekly discipline of spiritual meditation. It is a soul reality for all who will believe. And here's how you access it. You accept the exchange. You believe for the, for the first time or for the thousandth time. You believe. So this brings us back to Jesus' final words. It is finished. After uttering these words, Jesus is taken down from a cross and soldiers begin gambling for his tunic. Herod still continues to corruptly rule the Jews. The Pharisees continue to manipulate people through the temple and uh, Rome still rules the world through oppression and violence. So what exactly, Jesus, have you finished? The exchange of yokes. Jesus has fully and finally worn all of your internal dysfunction so that you'll never have to anymore. He did not do this as a mighty conqueror. He did this as one with a gentle and humble heart. And so the invitation to rest is the invitation to accept the exchange of yokes. Right now, even as we speak, Jesus promises that he is working to prepare a place for you and for me, a place of eternal rest, a place where we don't have to Sabbath because it's all Sabbath, a place where the internal murmur of our lives is forever stilled. That's the end of the story for all who believe, but it gets even better than that. We don't have to wait for eternity to begin to access that. Why? Because it is finished. Because the price has already been paid for all of the restlessness and weariness and burdens that you even carry with you as you step into the room today. The work is done. You just have to accept the exchange. The easy and light yoke of Jesus is freely given to all who will come to him. Will you come to him? As a prayer, I just want to read a few of the words of Jesus over you, some scriptures that describe his yoke. So if you would, just get into a posture of prayer, whatever that means for you. And instead of praying my words, I want to give you the opportunity to receive the words of Jesus, to remember that this is the yoke that he offers you in exchange for whatever you've come in with. The yoke of Jesus allows you to lay down proving yourself and to take up love outside of performance. You are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love.
takes us from weary to lively. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. From burdened to free. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. From an internal murmur to one gentle voice. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. From restless to peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. From self-accusation to divine defense. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And from anxious hurry to calm stillness. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. This is the yoke of Jesus, which is freely given to all who accept the exchange and come to him. Will you come to him? I'll give you a moment to reflect, and then we'll come to the table.